Hello and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In today's podcast, you will hear from experts Charles Craddock and Christopher Hurrigan, who share some insights into the important role of stem cell transplantation in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia. Topics covered include the value of pre-transplant MRD, the pre-measure study, novel technologies for MRD detection, and more. Hi, I'm, I'm Charlie Craddock from Birmingham, the UK, uh, and I'm with my great colleague and friend, Chris Hurrigan from NIH in the United States, and we're at the ISAL AML meeting. So Chris, a lot of the uh, talk at this meeting is about the emerging and increasingly important role of transplant in the management of fit adults with AML, and there's a lot of thought about how we improve transplant outcomes. And uh, your group has just had a really important paper published in JAMA, I think it was last week, around pre-transplant MRD and transplant outcome. I wondered if you could discuss the findings with, with us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so the study we published uh, almost two weeks ago now in, uh, in, in JAMA was uh, the pre-measure study. And the pre-measure study was really um, uh, focusing on this idea of can we actually use MRD as a test in clinical practice? What are we currently doing in terms of assessments prior to transplant? And what's the opportunity to do even better in risk stratifying patients? Um, my hope is this becomes something that we just don't talk about at meetings like this, but something in your routine practice. When you're seeing patients in clinic, it's an actionable test you can order and you can decide what's the most appropriate transplant for the person in front of you rather than for wide populations of patients. So Chris, just kind of summarize some of those findings in perhaps in particular molecular subgroups. Yeah, absolutely. So we've known about MRD, as you know, for 40 years now. Um, and one of, the, um, one of the particular opportunities it seemed to me was to look at now we have such great profiling and diagnosis for molecular subgroups to use those same markers to track the depth of response prior to a transplant. And so we focused initially on two, the two most common mutations in AML, FLT3 and MPM1, uh, and actually showed for, the, for six patients who are presenting for a transplant in first remission for a first transplant, perhaps one in six of those still has detectable variants, which are associated with a very highly increased risk of relapse and worse survival. And it's a simple blood test, a single blood test prior to transplant can really help you separate what on average is a 30% risk into five people with a 20% risk and that one person with a 70% risk. And we think that's that kind of stratification could be useful in the kind of trials you're doing. So just, just a bit on the technology then, Chris, because sure. we've been... Um quite comfortable, haven't we, using well-established QPR te technology for MPM1 quantitation, but your lab and I think a German lab have really pioneered a, a, a much more sensitive approach for FLT3 patients. Just discuss the technology with us yeah, a bit. Chris. Absolutely. So there's been great work in doing individual molecular tests using PCR, and the ELN guidance, as you know, says for core binding factor leukemia or for MPM1, you should use a validated test, which at the moment is PCR. We're really looking forward to getting these kind of tests in the hands of 
everyone though. I think these tests are only useful if they can be run at every place that's looking after these patients. And next generation sequencing gives this huge opportunity where many pathologists are now very comfortable running these kind of tests. And so can we translate some of that um, uh, findings from those specific favorable risk subgroups into the kind of patients who get a transplant? And so that's why we focused on uh, FLT3 ITD. As you said, there's actually three papers concurrently, um, uh, the uh, British and Australian uh, collaboration, uh, the Hope on SAC, and ourselves in the US. So we had 600 uh, patients in our study uh, with uh, FLT3 ITD. There's about 100 in each of those other cohorts, all using different methodologies, using next generation sequencing, all showing the same effect, that there is a clear um, uh, risk stratification of those who have variants detectable at a one in 10,000 level uh, to those who don't. So that's actually quite a breakthrough in patients with flip through mutations. So, so what, what would you be advising then should be the technology going forward in terms of MRD quantitation uh, pre-transplant in patients going to an allograph, some of whom don't have such easily detectable markers? Yeah, absolutely. So we don't want to do a top-down approach and the approach my group's used is generate the evidence that is so it convinces clinicians at the bedside that this has value for them. If this is marginal uh, changes and you can't really confidently say to the person in front of you, this is going to be an important test for you to run, then it's not convincing enough evidence. So we're really started with MPM1 and FLT3 ITD. We think we've made the case for both those detection prior to transplant. We'll continue to iteratively go through and add other mutations. There may be a point where we have a wide panel and a transplant panel you can send prior to someone going to transplant, but we didn't want to start from that point. We wanted to start with very robust test that we felt very confident about and then add to that as we go along. So I guess there's a bunch of patients, aren't there, who are coming to transplant now who aren't MPM1 positive or FLT3 negative, FLT3 positive. And our group, as you know, Sylvie Freeman really um, has pioneered with great skill, I think, the use of immunophenotypic strategies for detection of MRT. Do you feel those still have a role? Uh, absolutely. And if every center had a Sylvie Freeman, this would be a, a moot point, yeah. right? And I think that's part of the issue is just the heterogeneity of the testing. Yeah. ELN's been working hard to try and harmonize those tests between sensors. But there's, there's a real skill to doing flow cytometry. What we do with molecular is quite straightforward. I could train a college graduate within a few months to run the test we do. Um, and that's the hope is the pathologists who are very comfortable with molecular testing now could adopt this to a portfolio test they do. They don't need a Sylvie Freeman uh, next door as you have uh, to run these tests. So that's important, Chris, isn't it? But also the sensitivity that you're achieving, I think is greater. I think even yeah. Sylvie would admit a bit greater than you get with flow, yeah? Yeah, yeah. and I think there's, there's certainly going to be, we found in the particular case of MPM1 and FLT3 ITD, uh, there probably wasn't a need to do both those tests. Yeah. I think for other subtypes and other treatment modalities, yeah. we don't have any data in our cohort on A's of N treated patients. You know, we don't have complex character. There may be other groups of patients where actually flow is going to be the best test. And we really want to come in open-minded rather than being advocates for one particular technology. And so, so I think you're saying that the uh, prognostic impact of uh, MRD detection is to some degree context dependent, but it's also in the pre-transplant setting dependent on disease biology. Is, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So are there some subgroups, molecular subgroups, Chris, where a degree of MRD 
party positivity pre-transplant may not matter quite so much. Yeah, so I, I think about the, the P53 mutated group where actually I'm not sure, we'll, we'll test that formally, but I'm not sure the MRD status is going to be that helpful in really, which is typically a group where we need better therapies. And so um, I think it is going to be mean different things in different situations, different context of use. We were very specific in the pre-measure study to uh, narrow down or what could be seen as a narrow, boring question rather than the universal truth, blood, first remission, first transplants for those particular groups. Because I think it is going to change over time and it's going to mean something different if you have that after transplant, if you have that in an older person versus a younger person, different therapy, and we're just need to build up that evidence base over time. So I guess we're going to come on to the challenging question about what do we do with these folk, all right? But I suppose related to the, the other question I have around your JAMA paper is you talk about the prognostic significance in these defined molecular subgroups in terms of cumulative incidence of relapse, but does it impact kinetics of relapse, Chris? Yeah, that, that's a good question. It's something, it's something we looked at. We've, um, uh, what we would have loved to have done is looked at the degree of disease burden measured by MRD uh, and then how fast yes. or late you relapse, right? Um, uh, just even with a study like this, which is several fold bigger than other studies that have been done of this kind, we just don't have the data to, to answer that question. Um, we certainly saw cases where uh, it wasn't MRD, it was D going into transplant, yeah. a very high level MRD where there was relapse in the first three months. Yeah. We saw those cases, which are probably misdiagnosed remissions. Yeah. Um, yeah. But would, you know, I think uh, transplant such an individualized and such a heterogeneous therapy, it's very hard to isolate the effect of MRD with such different treatment. You know, the transplant works and it works to different ways, as you know, uh, with different kinds of transplants. So we, we captured that real world heterogeneity in this, in this study. So, I mean, I think we've, uh, captured enough content already around this really important data you published, but just in the last couple of minutes, I suppose you and I spend a lot of time, don't we, thinking about, okay, there is a high risk of relapse, but what are we going to do about it? Absolutely. And I would say, you know, the, the value of all this is predicated on people collecting detailed clinical annotation on carefully conducted studies. And so the value we saw, um, one of the values we saw in pre-measure was how great it was to have previously been able to analyze a randomized control trial. And I think it's so easy to fool ourselves. That's why I think the work you're doing is so important with these randomized questions around the peritransplant period, because it's so easy to fool ourselves with the, the, the wide range of variables we have going in here to get a signal or an anecdote and to run with that. Our patients deserve randomized evidence. Uh, and, you know, we really want to continue to build on that. Yeah, well, we're fortunate because we're working quite closely together, certainly sharing thoughts. And I think one of the fundamental points, Chris, before we come on about what the hell you do about it, is just it is important for our scientific colleagues to remember that clinical trials networks are very important to generate the robust, carefully curated matching sample and data sets for them to do pivotal results. And you and I are aware, we won't name them, but there are a number of papers in the leukemia setting and in the transplant setting that have just been retrospective, have changed practice, but actually have turned out to be highly misleading. Yeah, yeah so I think, as you say, it's really important that we have 
data sets that reflect the practice of all of us practicing. Um, and I think we want the evidence to be generalizable. Um, and I think the, the kind of networks of cooperative groups of clinical trials really help answer those questions. There's a bias, obviously, of who gets access to a clinical trial uh, and the, the availability of network, but it takes us a step closer to that patient you see in front of us. Um, it's not precision medicine if you can't apply it to the person you've seen in clinic. And so I, I think that's a, that's a key. So my thinking about what we do in patients who are pre-transplant MRD positive has been very heavily influenced by another of your papers, which is in JCO, and that came out of the USCT in 0901, where to cut a long story short, if I'm thinking about it with a patient sitting there in clinic and they're MRD positive pre-transplant, I think, well, could I do something about that? Or could I do something about the conditioning regimen? Or could I try and optimize a graph versus leukemia effect? Um, I'm, I'm, where I've landed is that at the moment, it's actually quite difficult to do anything in terms of pre-transplant MRD positivity. Yep. There's no data that yep. doing something will necessarily improve outcome. It could be dangerous and prevent people going to transplant. We don't go there, we go straight to transplant. Your data in 0901, to my mind, you can correct me, but essentially it said, if you're fit enough to have a myeloablative transplant, your MRT pre-transplant, you should obviously do that. And at the moment, actually, if the predicted TRM of a myeloablative transplant is, uh, is uh, acceptable, then why not do that anyway? But of course, there's a bunch of people who we have to do a RIC on, and it's about 60 or 70% of patients. And so there, that's where I think the issue is. And I suppose we've got some options, Chris. Do you want to just kind of? No, you're absolutely right. And you know, that, that study was for younger patients who could tolerate either intensity. So it's, a, it's an artificial setting. It doesn't reflect all the practice. But I think it answers that question. And I think since then, there's been a registry studies where the signal's less clean. But again, it's younger patients. And as we know, average age of AML is 68 years of age at first diagnosis. Um, and so that's the key on challenge is what we do for patients who can tolerate a non-myeloablative or reduced intensity transplant, have MRD positivity, have an incredibly high risk of relapse. We need an adjunct to that therapy. And what that is, whether that's augmenting graft versus leukemia effect, whether that's donor selection, whatever that's going to be, that to me is the next key challenge. Yeah. And those are, the, those are the patients with unmet need. So my sense of it is in this older population, which is many of our patients, I although we're doing the randomized studies, I think it's unlikely that changing the conditioning regimen much is going to do a lot, okay? I think you tweak a bit, you may get a bit more tox, a bit less relapsed, but I, but I don't see the breakthrough. Um, we had some data in the Figaro study, which was a large randomized study in this older population, which interestingly showed no difference between the intensified FLAMS of U regimen and, and a standard RIC, which showed that patients who acquire full donor T cell chimerism at day 100 subset analysis, not enormous numbers of patients, but those patients, they abrogated the adverse impact of pre-transplant MRD. So that's where I'm focusing in the first three months, actually, Chris. Yeah. Can we do something about tapering immunosuppression can we think about introduction of early cellular therapies? DLI, possibly that's challenging because of GVHD, but alternative cellular therapies, or could we think about the introduction of drug therapies early? So we'll have to see what plays out with the morpho data. I still think there may be a subgroup who actually are uh, benefit from gilteritinib um, maintenance. And of course we have two studies with serafinib that are positive. I think there is room, isn't there, for more maintenance studies. I think that's an important area, but also other strategies that switch patients to full donor Is that fair? Absolutely. It's a it's the reason we do an aloe transplant is to have an aloe effect. And the fact we don't have predictive myobarkers and we don't have strategies to augment a suboptimal aloe response 
is, is what we need to go where we need to go next. You know, the morpho study is a great example. Randomized trials are so important, even if they're negative, yeah. right? They teach us a lot. And I, so the, the value of doing randomized trials in transplant, I think uh, just can't be overstated. Yeah. So we started in agreement, we finished in agreement. Unusual, you caught it on camera. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and subscribe to VJHemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.